so, you know, that was the beginning of we built this uh, user interface that really worked. Like, uh, you know, anybody that tries out Avo is like, oh, this is this is the way it should be. Right. The thing is, we didn't think of our user as the builder. We thought about our user just as the one who's at the point of care. And so we didn't give as much focus to, well, how are people interacting with the builder? How does that work for them? And when they create it, what's their experience like? And that became a later focus. And so, you know, over that later focus, it's, well, let's understand the builder experience too. And let's get feedback and same kind of methods for understanding the user journey and the user experience with that software to be able to improve it. And through that feedback, it's like, okay, now we have the new version of uh, the builder that's out and constantly iterating. So there will be another version that's uh, even better um, to be able to account for that experience as well. Avocados, part of the combination that's locking millions of millennials out of the housing market, but also the fruit that AvoMD is named after. What's AvoMD? You didn't listen to our previous episode. Welcome back to How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of healthcare and health tech. This time around, we rejoin a conversation with Dr. Yair Saperstein, the co-founder of AvoMD, the rapidly growing New York-based startup that helps hospitals support doctors so that doctors can do better doctoring. That doesn't make sense? Well, great. Now you can listen. Let's get started. To take a step forward in the conversation then, I mean, you had mentioned that the COVID response, uh, I mean, helped build your inspiration towards, I guess, building the idea or what became AvoMD. Um, but you also had that uh, information technology role in the conversion or adoption of Cerner. I mean, those steps keep scrolling further and further back. When really did your interest uh, in digital, I, I guess, digital health um, or I guess information management in medicine startup? Was it that, I guess, adoption of Cerner or was it the COVID response? I'm not exactly clear on that. Yeah, I mean, the Epic implementation uh, did help um, and it helped like color the way that it would happen. But this yeah. is definitely in progress before before the Epic implementation. You know, as um, even in college, like I was involved in this Microsoft design team to be able to help make a better uh, keyboard that would not uh, like have key loggers that could get into it. And you know, put together a team to be able to build this for Microsoft and uh, competed. We actually won first place uh, user choice back in the day. Um, and so it was like always a thought of how do you combine technology with a way of improving uh, these systems. Fast forward to uh, like residency, it was like I helped install a new Wi-Fi system, helped with the two-way communication system across different hospitals. You know, I was always like involved over here. I had an advisor, uh, Isabel McFarlane. Um, who told me that what I'm doing is called clinical informatics and that I should go check it out. So at her uh, suggestion, got a, an elective at Columbia's Department of Biomedical Informatics. Um, and that I, it was like a survey elective, right? So I met everybody who was working there. One of the people that I met there happens to be PJ. Uh, and PJ told me about this cool app that he's building um, where he can input like algorithms into an app and then have it displayed. And that's what became Avo. So it, it really started from this like theme of, oh, computers can be used to help solve everything, right? Obviously. And then technology and its implementation into 
um, medicine is very much needed because medicine's behind the rest of the world and how it's adopting medicine and how it's adopting technology. And so there's a lot of room for improvement, whether it's because of regulation or uh, because of resistance to change. Otherwise, probably some kind of combo. And then it's like, all right, well, let's check out informatics. Thank you to Dr. McFarland. And then, yeah, this is it. And so then I really had to think about, well, do I want to go for an informatics fellowship formally um, for training? Am I going to learn on the job over here? Like, this is my dream to kind of run a health tech company. Um, spoke to a good 30, 40 people in making that decision. And, you know, as that part went, it was, uh, this is my chance to live a dream, like maybe fail fast, maybe make lots of little failures and then continue to grow. And obviously there were pivots and failures along the way, uh, which helped. Um, but it was the chance to live a dream versus going into the formal fellowship. Um, which was more, more structured. And then that point, it was like very different than my internship residency decision. It was like this stuff I can study on my own. I can implement it. I can still do it. I can still learn. I don't need the formal like structure in this case. Um, and so I ended up taking the boards separately after, you know, learning the informatics, uh, that was needed for it rather than going through that fellowship program so that I can live this dream. That was really well thought out. And I think that reflection that you've done in terms of the different steps that led you up to the point that you're at is super interesting. But speaking of reflecting, can you now summarize how, I guess, can you summarize the the purpose of the product of all that reflection, which is, I mean, AvoMD, can you summarize what AvoMD does um, as you would explain it to a five-year-old in only monosyllabic and bisyllabic words? Let's <laughs> So let's see, no code. So you don't need to use programming language to be able to contribute to building it. This means that for health systems, you can take your pathways and put them into the hands of your clinicians in a way that standardizes care where your clinicians can access effectively something that's like up to date in MD calc format, but can be edited almost by using SurveyMonkey, right? So it's really like a combination of those three ideas. And so for health systems, we're standardizing care. For providers within these provider organizations, we're making care more efficient and more effective because we can produce notes for you as you go through these pathways. We can uh, do lab interpretation for you. We can help you with diagnosis and management, right? Anything that you need at the point of care, pre-filled prior auths, right? Any activity that you need to do, it can help you and therefore save you time. For societies, the ones that are producing these 150 page uh, guidelines that are supposed to help people figure out what to do with whatever. I read all of that. Yeah, yeah, it's, I think you're like 99% of the world also that reads all of this. No, it's okay. No one does, I think, except for me. Like even some of the guideline authors tell me like, yeah, I didn't read like the final version. This is too long. It's like, I get it. I get it. It's like, you know, it's so how do you make that usable? Right. They work with us also to be able to actually make that usable for these guys. And then finally, um, life sciences. So the guidelines have drugs that are already inherent as standard of care. It already has medical devices that are inherent as standard of care. And once it's produced by the societies in our format, it's blocked, it's sealed, it's done. And so that means that if life sciences want to help distribute it, it's almost like they're just giving out the guidelines themselves. And that's totally fine. You know, it's not like they're creating it or making it have their drug in it or anything like that. There's nothing nefarious. So that's allowed us to give that value now to life sciences 
to have a compliant way and an effective way to get their drugs and medication and, and their medical devices to the point of care, to the physicians, to the nurses, to the clinicians that are there at the bedside in the clinic and actually have it as part of the pathway when it is standard of care already. So that's kind of the value of ABO. And in a word or in a sentence, it's a no-code platform for clinical decision support apps. I, I, I understand the value that ABO brings because there's like just, I just came off cardiology and there are so many different, I guess, guidelines for different presentations. So for example, someone came in with a uh, pacemaker and ICD and like, I haven't studied that. I don't know exactly how to manage that, but for a fellow, you have to know everything. And those guidelines change sometimes as devices evolve, et cetera. So to be able to update them, you know, live and to not have to read through a 150 page guideline is super helpful. But again, I don't know what kind of five-year-old you're speaking to. <laughs> Talking to a five-year-old that, uh, has been there. I'll honestly, I'll give you my pitch for a true five-year-old. Okay. Um, it, it goes like this. You use a phone, right? And when you use a phone and you're trying to figure out something, you have the option of using like 10 different apps to do it. That means you have to go and download it and go through all these things. Or you can click into one app that has everything that you need. Not only that, but that one app that has everything that you need, you can actually change little things in it to make it sure that it has everything that you need, no matter where you are. If you're in one place or a second place or a third place. Now, obviously, we're talking about making medical decisions, being a better doctor. You can be that better doctor now by having it because you're just empowered to practice at the best level of your five-year-old self. So we're basically solving this problem for you of needing to download all these disparate apps. I shouldn't use the word disparate, but all of these different apps. Um, and now you don't have to. It's all there together for you in a way that will work for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, to compare it to what I think a five-year-old would do, think of being able to buy like Robux from inside the Roblox app uh, and not having to go to your mom's credit card to put, put in the numbers, but actually being able to do it without having to tell your mom. It'd be so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, just, okay. So going off from that point, uh, you've started to build a pretty amazing product that has been adopted, as you said, by different policy societies, by different, you know, uh, healthcare providers and systems, but what's been your greatest struggle in identifying, um, articulating, and then building solutions to the problems that you've seen? Because I mean, I'm pretty sure that you didn't start out from ground zero, being able to articulate the problems and solve the problems as you are right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we started, um, it was not a company. It was me and PJ building my algorithms that were based on the society's algorithms into his mobile app. And I did it through a Google spreadsheet that he niftily put together that can translate into the Swift app that was only on iPhone. And we put it up on the app store so that other people can use it. And then it's like, well, it's useful for us. It's useful for our friends. How do we really get this out? Let's start with health systems, right? Give it to uh, like different hospitals, different programs, different clinics to be able to standardize care internally, meaning they're going to have to build everything that they want into the builder. Now, back then the builder wasn't quite no code like it is now. It was, we called it no code, but it was more low code. Um, not that it needed any programming language, but it was a learning curve. Right. So it was no code. It was just a harder to use no code. Now it's very simple. 
And so back then it was like, well, the health systems were struggling with building their own pathways into it. And so they asked us if we can help, which means that we had to get a builder team to be able to help. And we didn't want to be services. We wanted to be a technology, right? A, a SaaS platform, something that stands for itself, something that anybody can use. So it was like, well, how do we scale that up? That's what actually what led us to the societies. It's like if we're going to have to help them build, let's do something that works on a national scale. And make customization easier than building. So let's do that, right? And you see, there's like little changes along the way as we kind of figured it out. And, you know, once we started working with societies, then it really meant, oh, we have a third-party content provider. That's how we can work with pharma too, because pharma is not influencing the content. They're just helping us distribute the content. That's great. And so, you know, a lot of it came out as we were going down this a little bit more of a winding path to where we are now, where we really allow for both. So any health system that wants to be able to use it and edit it can using the builder they can create their own if they want. Whatever they create can go into our library so anybody else can use it as well. And then, you know, working with the societies that's also available nationally and internationally. Hmm. I think you had mentioned a really important uh, a really important point there about user experience. So like developing a health tech overall is, I mean, super user experience can or should be pretty user experience focused because the healthcare providers hand often don't have much time to learn how to use a, for example, um, catheter or another device, a different way than that, which they were taught before. But I guess for you, from your standpoint, what were some stories or examples that highlight the importance of user experience in developing AVOMD's product? Because, I mean, you probably didn't understand at the beginning uh, as to what, I guess, intricacies were needed in total to make sure that a uh, healthcare, I guess, administrator could properly format the product for use by physicians all throughout uh, the authority. Right. So, I mean, we were always focused on user experience and mm. the understanding of who our user was and what that experience was that they were going through continually came to light. So PJ, you know, I, it's my co-founder that I uh, always talk about within the context of product. He's really the product visionary. And so yeah. when I joined him, it was like he was always focused on, well, what's it like, including for me when I first joined him. And then it's like, all right, well, let's talk to a lot more providers. Let's really do like user feedback and understanding and do like walkthroughs with speak aloud so that we can really, you know, have them talk it out and understand what they're going through to get it more with EHR integration, without understand the user side. And at that whole time, and, and so, you know, that was the beginning of we built this uh, user interface that really worked. Like, uh, you know, anybody that tries out Avo is like, oh, this is, this is the way it should be, right? The thing is, we didn't think of our user as the builder. We thought about our user just as the one who's at the point of care. And so we didn't give as much focus to, well, how are people interacting with the builder? How does that work for them? And when they create it, what's their experience like? And that became a later focus. And so, you know, over that later focus, it's, well, let's understand the builder experience too. And let's get feedback and same kind of methods for understanding the user journey and the user experience with that software to be able to improve it. And through that feedback, it's like, okay, now we have the new version of uh, the builder that's out and constantly iterating. So there will be another version that's uh, even better um, to be able to account for that experience as well. 
But how difficult was it to get the sample size that you needed in order to get the data points to make your UX like solid? Not hard, right? It, really? When you're thinking, when you, yeah, when you're thinking about it, it's like, if you know the people that you're serving and you know the needs, right? Part of it is like personal. It was like, this was a problem that I had. And when we started it, it, we weren't solving other people's problems. We were solving our own problems independently and then came together to solve it. And so originally when we put it up on the app store and we got tens of thousands of downloads, it was a shock to us. We were not, we were pleasantly surprised. It was like, whoa, other people also need and like this. Let's see if we can build a version for Android that also can take in from a no-code builder instead of just a Google Sheet. And as we go through this process, let's see if we can fine-tune it by actually understanding other people's experiences. So we weren't starting from zero. We were starting from our own needs. And then like, you know, I had all the, all the doctors I could ever ask for and more around me to be able to give them, to be able to give their feedback and their experience with it from both a user interface and experience uh, kind of uh, way, as well as an overall idea, you know, talking to family members, friends, uh, mentors, colleagues, students about like, what do you think? You know, tell, tell me what you think by email, writing, watching them as they went through it. Like formally, we did some formal usability studies as well uh, in conjunction with Columbia and Englewood. And so over there, it's like, well, we wanted it to be statistically significant to be able to understand a little bit more. So like, yes, to be able to publish and understand and put it out in a way that's uh, formally documented. Sure. And so we did. Um, but to be able to get the experience and be able to build quickly, it's like, no, you iterate, learn, build. And they repeat. That's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I asked that is because your recounting kind of pales or contrast, not pales, it contrasts with the experience that one of our previous guests, uh, Josh Landy, his experience of uh, choosing not to test within his own healthcare circle, but rather to just rely uh, on users which were climbing on board naturally. So, I mean, it's interesting that you chose to go the path of involving those all around you. And I wonder, just side-by-side -side comparison, how that affected the growth of the different companies versus what risks were inherent in each method. Yeah, it's, it's, a good, it's a good thought and doing like a retrospective analysis of it could probably be useful for people. I remember reading uh, an article, I think it was put out by um, A16V about uh, how to think about the need for like user feedback and user testing and the like and some other aspects that were within it. And like it was a panel discussion with a bunch of others and um, they basically were saying, look, you, it's important and you have to do it, but there's no one way to be able to do it. So it's probably a parallel over here. It's like, you have to get user feedback. You have to understand yeah. the problem. If you're just building a product uh, in a vacuum, like it's going to You're fail. not building for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to fail because you're not going to get it to anyone. No one cares. It's like, that doesn't mean that it won't work in a bunch of years. Right. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. that it won't like, it won't succeed eventually. Like there's this book build. Um, which is written by the guy that built the iPhone and uh, back when he started it, like he talks about how he was building the greatest product ever, but for no one. And that failed. It's like you learn along, you learn along those failures and better to learn from books than learning from experience that if you don't engage the people that you're trying to build for and understand what they need, it's not going to work. At the same time, people might tell you something that they think that they need or they don't really even understand it. And so if you watch and learn, try and learn, right, you can do A-B testing and put it out and see. Like as long as you're set up in a way that 
you, if you fail, you as a person won't fail or you as a company won't fail and you allow for those failures to be growth, then you can learn in whatever way is best. Yeah. Okay. That sounds fair. I, I guess to, to spin away from uh, the topic of AvoMD, I noticed that you've also done quite a bit of work in advocating for healthcare workers to expand their horizons and explore their interests beyond direct clinical care. Why do you do this? Uh, it worked for me. And I want people to be able to get that benefit too. It's uh, my world has definitely opened by being uh, involved in different aspects, uh, more than just clinical medicine. Um, in clinical medicine, I felt almost like a cog in a wheel. There was no control, no ability to give feedback, no ability to discuss. Whereas over here in the roles that I have now, like I'm a part of the conversation. Doesn't mean that I can do change or that in my clinical role, I necessarily have that part. But for me, I feel more whole. I feel like I can have a broader impact, a broader positive change. And I have that fulfillment and I want people to be able to feel that and to be able to have that as an aspect. And so, you know, as uh, my way of giving back, it's like, I definitely want to do advocacy in any way as possible for anyone that's exploring alternative careers in medicine at any point in their career. Um, and to be able to arm people with the fact that it is possible, um, any of the resources of people and networking that uh, can help with it and any other resources that help within uh, exploring different options, like count me in for all of it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just thinking back, you've managed to su succeed to by by most definitions of uh, in in your pursuits beyond clinical care. But if you hadn't gone down this path, where do you think you would have went to quench that hunger to be heard, to manage systems and to affect change beyond directly laying hands on a patient? Many different places like startup uh, life for this, you know, for AvoMD is one that I'm doing now and most actively, but there's the nonprofit world in, uh, you know, as it relates to clinical and global health, as it relates to some of the teaching and education organizations, there's teaching and tutoring uh, in general. Um, for me in particular, there's Bible studies and Talmud studies, or I do some teaching, uh, um, some uh you know, personal growth within it. Um, super into uh, different competitive uh, um, exercise-based sports. So whether that's uh, running, uh, biking, and so on. So there was a time that I thought I would go into that uh, a little bit more seriously. Um, yeah, open, you know, and I don't even think it's one. I think, you know, as in contrast to the previous generation that more thought about jobs with stability and, oh, you do this job and this is what you do for life until you retire. I, I, and I think our generation thinks more about jobs as you do something that brings you fulfillment where you can bring positive change that really works. And so that doesn't necessarily mean one thing that you do for 50 years. Um, it can mean something that you do for a year or two, three, four, 10, and then change and morph as it becomes fulfilling or not or something else that works. So, you know, I think mm -hmm. as theme, not being locked into something, um, finding things that are fulfilling and engaging and being willing to explore. I mean, I've, I've noticed there that you mentioned optionality in some different phrasing twice already, um, but I've discussed that prior. But one thing that I do want to ask that uh, about what you've said just now is why, why should someone choose 
the startup route versus a nonprofit or a global health route? Like, what are some reasons beyond the fact that when you were in the place that you were, you managed to meet PJ? That in itself was luck to some extent, was it? Or I guess to to put it real simply and to avoid the rest of my word salad, um, what specific factors do you think or would you generally think would drive someone towards or away from the startup world when looking for non-clinical ways to engage with the world? Yeah, so startup world, uh, uncertain, um, you're dependent on people actually paying for what you're offering in some way, because that's how you survive, right? It's not grants, what you do in the uh, nonprofit world. Um, now I do want to take a step back. Startups can mean for profits or nonprofits, right? So I'm thinking, I'm thinking about it in the way of Ava, which is a for-profit, mm-hmm. um, within both, you have the ability to do good, um, in uh for profits you can do well at the same time right so that might guide you towards that if you have a financial component that you think about um within both of them you really can have a broad impact in what you do and you know thinking about um both of those regions i actually add a third which is you know i thought about working for google or apple or microsoft or or amazon like going into one of these big tech companies or these larger companies and it's like always think about what can you learn so like, as you do it, right, you want to further your education because that can bring you fulfillment. And so it's like, well, what can you learn in each of them? And you don't have to do one or another. Um, you could do one switch and try out another or, you know, find the people that you want to learn with and from. So it depends where they are. Um, even more important than being in a nonprofit or for-profit or a startup or a large company is who are the people that you're going to work with? What are the things that you're going to do and how can you learn doing them? Just to wrap conversation, because we're reaching the end of our time. Um, I mean, I know that AvoMD is the the biggest thing that you're working on, but what are the best ways that someone who's listening can support you and the work that you're doing to better the world of healthcare now? Um, so one way is if you have ideas that I don't think of, just reach out on LinkedIn, Yair Saperstein. Um Feel free to re- reach out in any other time, uh, any other way. So Twitter, um, email, through the Able of the website. Um, and then for specifics of ways to support, it's broad. You know, we're looking for ways that we can continue to bring value within the Able of the context. And so that means um, health systems, clinics that would be interested from the provider org side, any life sciences, so pharma or med device companies that would be interested from the distribution and funding side. Um, any societies that have content that they're looking to actually get into physicians' hands at the point of care, um, you know, happy to have those intros. So that's from a networking perspective. Um, From a personal fulfillment perspective, as I mentioned, I'd love to be able to coach, mentor, speak to anybody that's within clinical that's thinking about alternative careers. So um, would definitely uh, be able to um, work in that sense too, to be able to uh, speak with anyone on that front. One last question, and I'll definitely edit this in post. How are you dealing with the regulatory barriers around working as a software as a service company in the health space? Um, so 
regulatory barrier. It's mostly come with like anti-kickback laws and making sure that the pharma companies are not giving influence to the decision support that's there. And the way that we tackle that is because the content belongs to, is created by, and is stamped by the societies that create it. It's just distributing from the pharma side. And so pharma companies for sure can distribute whatever they want. Uh, that's already been produced by the societies. For example, if they took the American Heart Association chest pain guideline, there's no issue with that. And so it's the same thing. Like for us, the most important is having the trust of clinicians and making sure that we are doing everything that's both ethical and legal uh, in a compliance way, in a compliant way. And so, you know, the pharma company does not have their drug that is endorsed or spoken about explicitly within the guideline that's added because they're sponsoring or anything of that sort, or we're just giving them the ability to drop the paywall for everyone else publicly to actually access the society's guideline. So it's almost like they give a grant, just that the way that we treat it is it's our partnership with the pharma company for distribution. But effectively, it's just dropping the paywall for everybody else to be able to use the society's guideline. That's fair enough. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for coming on to speak, Yair. I really appreciate it. Um, this is How It's Med. You can find us on how at howitsmed.com. And you can also find us on all the podcatchers that you listen from uh, at How It's Med. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.